Good morning and welcome to Thursday morning, November the 9th in 2023 on When I Rise. Today we continue year A, proper week 27, which is the 24th Sunday after Pentecost. And on the Thursday of the week, we'd like to take a look at the New Testament letter passage, which comes to us from this week from the Revised Common Lectionary in this week of the church's calendar year. And so we find ourselves back in the book of 1 Thessalonians, skipping ahead a couple chapters. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So let me read that passage, provide a couple points for reflection, and then we'll spend our time praying along the theme that we find there. Thanks for making us party in morning on When I Rise. Let's allow our souls to rise and meet God together in a time of prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is a word of God for us. All right, so this is a, a famous passage. It's one that uh, is hotly debated. It's one that if you read in the midst of a small group or a Sunday school, uh, a very good, stunning conversation, a thrilling conversation would probably emerge. Um, it's just worth noting once again that before we get into the weeds of the passage, that the Bible is uh, life-giving, obviously, for all people, uh, people who are learned and those who are unlearned. It's life-giving for us today, uh, 20, 21 centuries later and removed from its initial um, events that are recorded in the New Testament, and it's uh, life-giving to those who are reading this document for the first time. Okay, Uh, that being said, we also have to acknowledge once again that we come as servants and we become those who are visitors to the text. And what I mean by that is this this was written not to us. certainly written for us and for others, but it was written to a group of people um, in Thessalonica in the first century. Okay, And this is early in New Testament study. This is early in the collection of these books of the New Testament. And because of that, we have to check ourselves at the door, even though we can affirm what uh, the Reformers call the perspicuity of Scripture, like the plain reading of the text, uh, where we can read it and we can... Uh, take for granted the the great scholarship, the translation work. With that in one hand, and the other hand, we could say, but still there is, this text has uh, got a bit of a, a thinly veiled mystery around it because um, we are removed from this culture. We are removed from its original language. Like it is not natively our own. Therefore, we should be disciplined enough not to co-opt this text to want to answer questions that we have in particular. 
because our questions may not have been their questions. And so we have to ascertain this round trip experience. My favorite and first uh, Bible instruction professor at Sterling College, Irma Pruto, she said, you got to take a round trip into the world of the Bible and a a trip back home. Okay, so we got to go into the text, the world's text, and then we've got to exit and come back to our world. We've all been around preaching that uh, it does one side or the other well, like either just stays in our world and makes conjectures about this first century text, or um, we have those who their preaching is great because it takes us into the world of the Bible, but then when it comes time to land the plane for our own life, um, we, you know, words kind of fall short. So we got to try to do both here. So the question that uh, Pauline scholars grapple with is, does Paul, uh, it, does he line up behind this doctrine that we've come to know now, centuries later, as a rapture, okay? Is this text in particular um, diagramming what the end of the world is going to look like, where if there are people alive in the Lord, they will take like second spot in line behind those who are, quote, asleep in the Lord, and we're going to actually be lifted up in the time-space continuum and meet Jesus in the air because he is going to meet us halfway um, and then take us away somewhere else into a different time space. Um, and so there are dispensationalist preachers and teachers. Um, there's probably more Christians than not in America who would embrace some some form of a rapture theology. It's just worth noting that rapture doctrine is, is almost invisible. Like it's probably not around. For several centuries, and if we can just be honest, and when it lands in American religious life, it seems to enter in at an opportune time, and it's not used the same way from generation to generation. So, just in general, uh, Americans begin to imagine a rapture in post World War II settings uh, when the world was torn asunder. I mean, before the Civil War, the, the, the popular opinion was a post-tribulation uh, end of the world where the church would partner with Jesus to administer God's kingdom and peace um, all the way to the end, even through a season of suffering if it was there. But after war, uh, the Civil War, we saw Christian brother take up arms against Christian brother and the bloodshed and the horror of it all. Uh, people began to imagine that, it, that maybe the world cannot be fixed and redeemed in that way, but it's got to have to be fixed and redeemed in a more drastic measure. And God in his kindness would remove the elect or his people from the earth um, before he does that drastic type of work in the earth. And so you begin to stitch things together, like some later parts of Daniel and some parts of the book of Revelation. And all of a sudden there begins this picture, you know, begins to come into being. And once again, like, read the Bible, study it for ourselves, obviously, like do the plain reading thing, but also ask the question, would someone like Paul, like a a second temple first century Jew, with his view of cosmology, with his view of what the kingdom of heaven emerging among us would look like, what he thought was the the meaning of resurrection from the dead, like would he conclude all these things, okay? Um, I'm getting ready to run out of time here, but it's just worth like framing the conversation Obviously, one of the rules that I carry and I submit humbly to the When I Rise audience is you can think of what you want. Like You don't have to agree with me. In fact, I get a text thread from folks all the time, you know, offering 
some different opinions about stuff and I think it's great it helps open my eyes and now that we have to stand before these texts every three years like who knows maybe the next in three years I'll change my mind and uh, there's a good chance I might because we just keep pulling the big books off the shelf keep on uh, looking and studying and being curious and continue to try to figure this out but wherever I would conclude this I just humbly submit um, this is a view from N.T. Wright N.T. Wright um, who is you know, my favorite theologian, in my opinion, probably the greatest living New Testament scholar that we have. And for a few decades now, he's been concluding that Paul is not, you know, he doesn't conclude a, a rapture theology. Um, Paul would have maybe stitched together a few governing events from the Old Testament period that he's um, mashing together and a cataclysmic scene at the end. Um, he would not have supposed that... Um, Paul would have imagined being taken from this world, but he would remind us of the prayer of Jesus, uh, the Lord's Prayer in the beginning of the Gospels, where he says, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the flight pattern is not away from this world, but toward this world. It's the same in Daniel 7. It's, um, it's reckoned even in the book of Revelation, where a kingdom comes from out there or from another space to our space. God dwells with humanity here on the earth, right? Still a lot of mystery there. Still not all the way clear, but it does not seem like the Apostle Paul would um, conclude a rapture theology. Once again, if you want to conclude that with your reading of it, it's totally fine. Um, There's a couple of interviews that uh, the Holy Post guys did with a scholar of religion, American life uh, from University of Wisconsin, who maps out some of the major thinkers of rapture theology. And that scholar concludes, if you look at the, the theological landscape today, nobody of repute in evangelical seminaries is teaching dispensational theology with rapture involved. Like it's just not, it's just not a thing that's perpetuating longer. It seemed to be um, important for some tumultuous times of American life, uh, civil war, world wars, Vietnam war, uh, maybe the war on terror that we had in the the nineties into the two thousands. But now uh, with some more careful analysis of first century thought, things that we're gleaning through the dead sea scrolls through and reexamining again, what it means that Paul was a first century Jew. Like it would have been a really wild and exotic thought for him to imagine this. But once again, this is what we concluded today. Theology keeps on evolving. There continues to be further conversations on this. And so what is Paul saying? I just go back to the very last verse of this passage where he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul is ultimately not trying to get a timetable of the end of when Jesus is going to return. But he's saying, like the suffering that we may be enduring like the hard work of church work, of making disciples, of trying to negotiate disputes and help people settle when they're at odds with one another, like it's not in vain. He says that in other places, like places like First Corinthians 15, like this hard work is not in vain, but Jesus is going to punctuate it all. He's going to reappear. He's going to establish the kingdom, and we're going to be in his care, both those who've died in the Lord before then, or those who remain in that you know, in that feverish church work today, like God is going to comfort all of us and he's going to make it all matter at the end. I think that's more than enough, right? I hope that's enough. That we don't have to try to map out how this is all going to take place, even though that's invigorating conversation. 
what's most pressing for Paul and hopefully for us as church leaders and those with our minds on as we try to engage and what does it mean to be Christian today is simply the idea of is all this work adding up to something and Paul says again and again he does so in a place like this it does and Jesus is going to reveal it all at the end so with those things in mind let's spend some time praying to our God this morning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that in the mystery of how everything's going to work out in the end, and as we wrestle with, does our work matter, and does the the hard work of praying and worshiping and organizing ourselves for service ultimately lead to anything? We thank you that there's a passage like this to bring us comfort. We thank you that you watch over your people, that those who have died, they die in the Lord, and they're in your care at this moment, so we thank you for our loved ones who are not... um, not not without a comforter and not without an advocate for them. And so we thank you, Jesus, that uh, you take care of your people and you take care of those who've passed in you. You take care of those of us who are still alive in you, working out uh, the ramifications of the gospel in our world today. And so God, this day, we just pray that you would fill your church with a great enthusiasm for that work, that we would have creativity and inspiration and that we'd have guts and vigor for the work of the church. And we do pray for your return because we know that ultimately that is going to be um, where this is all heading. And ultimately you can orchestrate the restoration of all things and the mending of the whole universe. And so uh, with our worship and with our prayer, we imagine it. And so we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will be done. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.